morning, church. It's so good to be with you. And if you're a first-time guest, I just want to say thank you for joining us at church this morning. We'd love to invite you to check out our website, salemheightschurch.org, to learn more about who we are and what we got going on at the church this season. Well, this past week, we released an update video about the return to church for live services. And so if you didn't see that, uh, you can go to the website and see that video where we answer questions like, how close are we? What are we doing for children's ministry? And will there still be an online version when we go back to live services? So I want to encourage you to check that out. Well, let's turn our attention now to the worship and the teaching of God's Word as we come together as one church this morning. Hey, good morning, Sam Heights. We're so glad that you join us. If you're at home, let's praise our great God. If you're here at church, let's all stand on up and sing to him. Take my 
continue singing now about God's good grace. An amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. T'was grace that Amen. Mm-hmm. 
that we don't want to take for granted. You've given us so much. You've given us yourself through your word. We can hear your thoughts about us. We can hear your thoughts about this life. We thank you, God, for speaking so clearly. It's us that sometimes gets in the way of that gift of hearing your voice. But now, God, as we open your word and you speak clearly, help us to put aside the distractions and the chaos of this life and to hear the peace that you give to us today, the peace that passes understanding, that comes from your word, God, the truth that we can hold on to in this life. God, we love you, we thank you, and we pray all these things in Christ's name, amen.
Well, good morning, Salem Heights. I pray you are blessed by our time in singing songs and hymns. I pray that you're thankful for that team and the music that they bring to us. This week, we're gonna continue our series, Christianity on the Grow. And we're gonna find ourselves in Acts chapter 15, and it's addressing a concern. And the concern in the church deals with the fact that sometimes Christians can be quarrelsome. I know that it's a shocker, but as we go into this passage, I think that you will see the difference between a good quarrel, a good question, a good concern, and one that can lead to confusion. This is a moment in the church where the leaders pause because of the questions and concerns, and they address an issue that is so central to the gospel that to get it wrong is to get the gospel wrong. In fact, this is a moment that is so significant in Paul's life that in Galatians chapter 1 and 2, he, he declares, I was called to preach the gospel. In chapter 1, he says, this is the gospel that saved me. And in chapter 2, he says, this is the gospel that I had to defend. And it's this moment in Acts chapter 15 that he highlights as a central part of his testimony. He is declared an apostle. He rises to prominence. And this moment, he says, was the key moment that gave verification of my apostleship. I want you to understand the gospel and every culture can hear the gospel and respond within that culture and be saved. And he says, I want to clarify how. How are we saved? Acts chapter 15, and we're going to read portions of it this morning. It starts with this. It says, Some men came down from Judea and began to teach the brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom prescribed by Moses, you cannot be saved. After Paul and Barnabas engaged them in serious argument and debate, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to the apostles and elders in Jerusalem about this issue. When they had been sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and they brought great joy to all of the brothers and sisters. When they arrived at Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church, the apostles, and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders gathered to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood and said to them, brothers, you are aware that in the early days, God made the choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles would hear the gospel message and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now then, why are you testing God by putting a yoke on the disciples' necks that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear. On the contrary, we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way they are. And the whole assembly became silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul describe all the signs and wonders that God had done through them among the Gentiles. Down to verse 22. It says, then the apostles and elders with the whole church decided to select men who were among them to send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, Judas called Barsabbas, and Silas, both leading men among the brothers. And they wrote, from the apostles and elders, your brothers, to the brothers and sisters among the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some without our authorization went out from us and troubled you with their words, unsettling your hearts, we have unanimously decided to select men and send them to you along with our dearly beloved Barnabas and Paul, who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we sent Judas and Silas, who will personally report the same things by word of mouth, for it was the Holy Spirit's decision and ours 
not to place further burden on you beyond these requirements, that you abstain from food offered to idols, from blood, from eating anything that has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. You will do well if you keep yourselves from these things. Farewell. Now we'll save the rest of that chapter for just a few moments. I want to have you consider just a couple of things very quickly, but they are very important. And the first thing I want you to notice in this passage is that questions and concerns are a natural part of Christian growth. This is actually how we learn from the time that we are little. We begin to ask questions of the world around us. We have a concern about how something fits in to our space or into our world or how we can be in the presence of certain things. How do things grow? How do things activate? How do relationships work? And we begin to ask questions and it's how our brain organizes that information. It's interesting, Michael Cornard, a child psychologist, did a series of studies on kids and the main issue was, what happens if you have a kid that asks really good questions? What happens if you just have a kid that asks random questions? And what happens to a child that's never allowed to ask questions? He had all kinds of interesting observations, but the most striking one to me was that those kids who were not allowed to ask questions or who did not have good answers to the questions that they posed were kids that later on lost their way were confused about their place, or did not know how to negotiate society. Questions were a key part of their mental development. And what we see in scripture here is that questions and concerns are a key part of our spiritual development. But we have to ask questions at the right time. It's said that St. Patrick, when he was going through and leading heathens to Christ would consistently lead them to Christ and then he would baptize them right away. And there was a, a bunch of Druids who had followed Christ. And so he took them out to the water and he began to baptize them. And he had baptized one in particular. He brings him up out of the water and he told him, man, you can go, you're new in Christ. And the man says, well, I can't go. And, and Patrick says, well, sure you can, you can leave now, you're free. And he says, no, your staff has been on my foot the whole time. Patrick says, well, why didn't you say something? And he goes, well, I thought that was part of it. We always give our youngsters a trouble when they think that just having a hard time in the faith is actually part of growing in the faith. It's not just youngsters, but new believers. When they come to Christ, the question has to be, what is it that God would have them remember and focus on? Sometimes we as believers and leaders add hard things in there that are not a part of the gospel. And Paul and Barnabas actually look at this group of people and say, we have to do everything possible to get rid of the hard things that are not necessary things. Asking questions, having concerns are a part of the process. Ask them naturally when they come up. But there's another thing we see here is that God often uses questions and concerns to bring clarity. The clarity in this moment is found in verse two. It actually says that some brothers began to teach that unless you are circumcised according to the custom prescribed by Moses, you cannot be saved. And Paul and Barnabas engaged them in serious argument and debate. It actually says at that moment, these questions and concerns, a statement comes up and Paul and Barnabas don't just push back on it, but it actually has the idea, that word there, of having heat to their discussions. This cannot be. You can't do these things. You cannot be saying those kinds of things to these people or they will lose their way. They will reject salvation. They won't feel saved. What is at stake? That is the question. The clarity that they needed had to do with three different areas. And one is the thing that was at stake was their security. I want you to think about in our culture, and one pastor has pointed this out. In our culture, we're told when we are little that you can be anything that you wanna be. So imagine now that you're your little 12-year-old self and you imagine, well, I, I'm writing down my list. I, I wanna be the president of the United States. I want to be an Olympian. I, I want to be 
somebody that runs their own business. I want to be wealthy. And you have this list now that's yours when you're 12. Well, that's an exciting proposition. And what do they tell you? If you just have enough discipline, if you just have enough direction, if you just have enough stick you can be those things. Well, how is that list treating you when you're 40? If that list is the idea of who you have to be in order to be complete, what has happened to you? Can everybody be president? Can everybody make it to the Olympics? Can everybody run a business, have those things? Is everybody set up to have success in those areas? If that is the way to a satisfied life, how many people fail because they cannot live up to their own expectations. You introduce that into the gospel and you say, hey, you came in through Jesus Christ, but now if you want to stay saved, you need to look like a believer. Well, all of us have different identifying markers of what might be really important in the faith. But the question is, if I don't live up to the expectations that I have brought in to the gospel, I begin to feel like I've lost my way or I've lost my salvation. My security is at stake. Paul is saying, don't add anything. They came in by faith, we're saved by the same faith they're saved by. When the Gentiles responded, the Holy Spirit comes and they haven't been baptized, they haven't been circumcised, they're not part of an old identity. None of that happened. The Spirit shows up just like it did to us the moment that they believed. Our security is at stake, but also our identity is at stake. Why do the Old Testament rules exist? The Old Testament rules were there, and, and he actually highlights these. This is part of what it meant to have a cultural identity. That remains. But the reason that those Old Testament rules were there, if you took on circumcision as a family, if that was what happened for your child, you were proclaiming, not just that they would be circumcised, but they were going to follow all of the Old Testament regulations. We're going to follow these rules. Why was that valuable? Because for 1,500 years, they had carried all of the truth about the coming of Jesus. There's pictures of who Christ is, of what he would come to do that are built into the law. But also the purity of that truth was important. If they had mixed with the Babylonians, if they had mixed with the Macedonians, if they had mixed with the Moabites, if they had mixed with all those other cultures, then what we would be saying is, well, yeah, they're saying these things, but that truth comes from this culture or that culture or another one. God wanted to make sure that the truth was untainted so we would know the Messiah when he showed up. So he gave them rules that literally pulled them out of every other culture that was around them. They were so distinct and so different that they could not be engaged with without ruining their identity. So the Jewish people were separated, and therefore the truths that God had handed to them were unmixed with the societies around. Societies around would hear about them and would grab onto some of their ideas, but the truth that God had given them met us all the way at the cross. But when Jesus came, there was no longer a need to maintain that separate identity because the truth had arrived. Christ fulfilled all the law. So all of those things were taken care of. And now he says, you no longer have to be Jewish to have the truth, but you can still be Jewish while you're in the truth. He says it's okay to maintain your cultural identity, but Christianity is going to go into every single culture and save people. They don't have to become you. If you think about how Christianity is different from other religions around the world, if you have uh, some of these other religions, they require you to take on the identity of the culture that religion was born in. Not so with Christianity. Christianity has you focus on Christ. We focus on Jesus, his death, burial, and resurrection, but the culture gets its full flavor, still is a, it's allowed to remain. You can still have a cultural identity that comes from Africa or South America or Europe or Asia or the United States. You can still have that cultural flavor and be a Christian. That's an important distinctive. But what's at stake is also the purity of the gospel. I want you to hear from 
a spoken word artist named David Bowden. And, and I want you to hear as he handles a question that is much like what they're dealing with in Acts chapter 15. And I believe it will do two things. First of all, it will clarify how questions can be used to clarify the truth. But also, you will see him speak with some passion that I think is a kindred spirit to Paul's. There is a passion about getting this truth right. Let's watch. If, if I, this is the condition, the why, the question mark over each of our lives. If, if I, if I am good enough, if I don't mess up too much, if I go to the right church, if I prove to God my worth, if I pray before I eat, if I read scripture before I sleep, if I do enough good works, if I share the gospel with those who search, if I always give it my best try, if I do the most I can before I die, if, 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 I. Now the problem with these questioning lines is not actually that you're asking if, but that your if is dependent upon your I. Because if you're trying to provide yourself with an equation that assures you of your salvation, and you're trying to use yourself as the standard, the cause, the determinant, the foundation, then all you will ever get out of your internal interrogations to the question, have I finally done enough to receive salvation, will be a resounding negative declaration no, no, you aren't good enough. No, you messed up too much. No, you did not do enough good works. No, you did not prove to God your worth. No, you didn't give it your best try. No, you didn't do enough before you died. If your if is based on your I, then your assurance of salvation will always be denied. And yet, for every single one of us, this is what we've tried to base our salvation on self-evaluation. But all we ever get out of this arrangement is condemnation. That's why you feel lacking, no matter how hard you try, because your if is based on your I. It's why you feel disobedient no matter how often you comply because your if is based on your I. It's why you feel distant, like a misfit, like a second-class citizen. It's why you feel empty no matter how much you supply because your if is based on your I. And your I can never measure up to the standard of God on high. And that's not because his standards are awry, but it's because he is perfect and we always fall short of that prize. And so there is always condemnation for those who are in I. But there is good news. There is gospel free to all without price. For there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So let's make a new condition. Let's Let's ask a different why. With the old one gone, let's fly a freshly drawn question mark over each of our lives. Let's ask a new if to replace our if eyes. Let's ask if, if Christ, if Christ was good enough, if Christ loved so much, if Christ died to save his church, if Christ rose to give us his worth, if Christ provided bread of life to eat, if Christ fulfilled the scriptures by crushing death beneath his feet, if Christ performed every good work, sought out those who never searched, died the death we should have died, beat the grave to raise us to life, if, 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 Christ. Now, 
the joy within these questioning lines is that our if is no longer dependent on something that we supplied. Instead, the if of our salvation is dependent on the one who loved us so much that he was crucified. So let's abandon our if eyes and run towards if Christ. Let's move from feeling like I'm condemned to say I'm convinced that neither life nor death, neither heights nor depths, not my own faults or mess ups, not my guilt or distrust, nothing can separate me from the love of God because all my ifs Christ answered on the cross. And so we can ask one final if, and with it, all condemnation is crushed. If God is for us, who can be against us? I want you to just take a moment and reflect on that final question that David has for us. If God can be for us, who can be against us? How do we know that God is for us? The scriptures declare that Christ died, was buried, and rose again on the third day. And if we believe in him, we have eternal life. God is for us. He's already sent his son for us. The main issue that's at stake in Acts 15 and that's at stake in your life is whether or not you have believed in Christ. If you've put your faith in Christ, the rest of it is taken care of. That's critical. If you've put your faith in Christ, you know for sure God is for you. He is with you. He'll purify you. He'll take care of you. He will do it all. The key question is faith. But I also want you to know in this passage that God can use questions and concerns to build community. It says the apostles in verse 22, and the elders with the whole church decided to select men who were among them and send them to Antioch with a letter. Now we read that letter earlier and it just in essence says, some people came and stirred you up. Here's Paul and Barnabas, but so that you don't think that they've just made up this answer, we're sending a few extra guys uh, along with them to shore up that truth. But here's our declaration. There's nothing further you need to do. Just believe in Jesus and you're saved. But we do ask, they said, that you abstain from food offered to idols, from blood, from eating anything that's been strangled, and from sexual immorality. You will do well. It does not say you will be saved. It says you will do well if you keep yourselves from these things. By the way, that's still true today. Do you know in our culture we have idols? Certain things that we look to that give prominence, that we invest our time in, that take the place of God, that we dream about, we think about, or we order our lives around. There are idols still even today in our culture. He says stay away from those things uh, that are going to pull you away from framing your life with Christ. He says stay away from blood. Uh, here he gives two different things that, that in their Mediterranean world were repulsive to them. He says, for especially the Jewish believers, when it says the life is in the blood, you go back and start to, if you sit down with a bunch of believers and you have blood pudding, he says, you're going to be repulsive to them. Nothing about your discussion will be enjoyable. They won't be able to hear you because you're touching something that for them has always been taboo. You know that we've had people visit us from other cultures, people saved out of Hinduism that come here and are asking the question, why do you have meat with every single meal? Part of their culture had just eaten differently than we do, but they were struggling with it, so much so that those that house them endeavored to eat differently when they are there for the sake of that brother so they wouldn't be discouraged. What is it that is repulsive to other cultures? Don't go in and flaunt it. In fact, the implication of this letter, the strong wording here is that freedom does not flaunt. Don't just do something because you can. It ends with sexual immorality. It says, 
and keep yourself from sexual immorality. And in every single culture all around the world, this has always been a problem. Our culture gets derailed by sexual immorality. It happens outside of the church and in all the time. It is still a problem. He says, stay clear of that. And it says, you will do well. This is the path to a satisfied life. But there's one more question and concern that we see in this passage. And it says this, starting in verse 36. It says, And after some time had passed, Paul said to Barnabas, Let's go back and visit the other brothers and sisters in every town where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. And Barnabas wanted to take along John, who was called Mark. But Paul insisted that they should not take along this man who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And they had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark with them and sailed off to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed after being commended by the brothers and sisters to the grace of the Lord. He traveled through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. The last thing I want you to see in this passage is that questions and concerns can lead the best of us to cut ties. Uh, Vance Havner once said, Christians are like porcupines. Sometimes they have so many good points, they're hard to be around. Paul and Barnabas are like that. Here they are, I believe, in the midst of the battle. In fact, the indication is this is 14 years after they have been associated. They've been together 14 years uh, working. Barnabas is the one who said Saul is the one that we need in Antioch. Uh, he's the one that is leading the charge to get people settled in Antioch. He's the organizer of the church and, and he's the one that helped organize many of these first trips. Barnabas has been in the battle every step along the way and they've been opposed. They have these sharp disagreements. It's a different word from what we see at the beginning where there's serious heat and battle. This one is actually a, a word that, where we get uh, paroxysm or, or literally a reaction that just happens naturally. It's, by the way, the same word that comes up in Hebrews 10:25. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good deeds. We're supposed to get a reaction that causes them to go towards goodness, but in this time it was a reaction that causes two people to split. The question often comes up, who was right? I don't really know how to answer that. I do note some things from the text and from the rest of church history. Right immediately here, it says that Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed off to Cyprus, but Paul after being commended by the brothers and sisters to the grace of the Lord, sailed on the missionary journey. Paul was prayed over, he was blessed, he was recommissioned, Barnabas just left. Luke never again mentions Barnabas in any of his writings. And it's interesting that as Barnabas goes to Cyprus, there were no other missionary journeys that the church would participate in that would go to Cyprus after this moment. On all the rest of Paul's missionary journeys, Cyprus gets skipped, even though that was one of the places they had planted a church. It's also important for us to know that John, later on, John Mark, becomes useful. He's listed three different times in Paul's writings as being useful, helpful, and Paul even encourages one church, hey, make sure you accept him. And I think it's because of what happens here that he has to say that. And Barnabas, in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says, hey, I, you're raising support for me. That's a worthy endeavor, but also you should raise support for Barnabas. He supports the work that Barnabas is doing in Cyprus. My own opinion, and this isn't based on a statement in Scripture, but I think that Paul and Barnabas have been working so hard and battling so consistently against others. There was this sharp reaction because the battle is tiresome. I think Barnabas was just overwhelmed in the work. Why did he want to take John Mark with him? Well, it says in other places that it was his family. He just wanted to be near family. He just wanted to be near home. I think the work had worn him down. So he goes back to Cyprus where he stays faithful until his final days. And John Mark is with him and he's so encouraged by that work, he becomes useful. 
I think Barnabas was just tired and it was time for them to go separate directions. Pastor Stephen Cole says as a result of this, he began to think about even his own struggles within a church and he came up with four questions that he asks. Anytime there's a battle between he and, and staff or between other people at churches, four questions he asks them to consider. And I would ask you to bring these along with you at your next dispute. First, what is the nature of the difficulty? What is it that is causing a dispute? Is it a biblical concern or not? Secondly, is there an important biblical principle that's at stake? It's not just whether or not I'm having a hard time and I can identify my struggle in Scripture, but am I actually battling over something that is theological? And if I get this theological issue wrong, it will lead people the wrong direction. Is there a biblical issue that I must think appropriately about? Third, what biblical qualities is the Lord trying to develop in me through this clash? It is never one-sided. We always have to take a look at two different sides and, and ask ourselves, what is it that God is doing in me? What could I do better? What do I need to do differently? 1 Corinthians 13 should shape us all the time. Am I loving? Am I thoughtful? Am I patient? Am I kind? We walk through that and be able to say, what needs to grow in me as a result of this situation? And fourth, would the cause of Christ be furthered or hindered by continuing to work together? You know, sometimes we spend so much time ironing out the problems this way that we're not spending enough time working on the details this way. If the energy it requires to work together is too much, sometimes God calls people to work side by side in different places. That's not wrong. We just need to identify it. It's important for us to labor through those questions and concerns. Cutting ties in this moment is not lifted up as a good model. There's no place in Scripture where we look back to this moment and say, that's how you do it. It happened. They move forward. But I do think we can learn some lessons from it. I just have a note as we wrap up to those of you who might be called quibblers. That's people who chronically have some problem that is the next thing you got to face. Just when we answer one concern, there's another. And you answer that concern and there's another. And you just find yourself restless and concerning. Uh, a short while ago in Oregon, there was a car accident. And it was a teenager uh, who had caused the accident. Four different cars had collided. They were going through a tunnel. And what they discovered later was that everybody in the car was holding their breath. They were holding their breath going through the, the tunnel because they had learned that as kids, and he passed out behind the wheel and ran into four other cars. Thankfully, everybody lived. But the moral of that story to me is, if you don't take a breath, you can wreck a lot of lives. Sometimes we got to stop quibbling and start serving. This passage becomes a centerpiece as they clarify the gospel and they move forward into fruitful ministry. How are we saved? By faith alone. What do we need to proclaim? If you're in Christ, you're absolutely free. And on that basis, the church explodes and grows. And it's still the case today. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that you would help us First of all, with questions and concerns, to be able to have a place where questions and concerns are handled in the right way, that they are brought up, where we encourage questions, where we deal with concerns, where we're able to sort out what things are of theological uh, essence and what things are secondary in nature. Father, help us to be a place where that kind of culture grows, where we can hear truth and respond to it. Not like the world around us that can't hear truth, can't further truth, and can't hear anything other than their own opinion. Father, help us, because of your spirit, to be able to hear questions and concerns and to grow from those. But Father, we do pray that you would save us from ourselves, from having questions and concerns become such a reaction in us that we actually begin to split and separate from each other because we cannot handle uh, the presence of another. We see that in all the culture around this. Um, but Father, 
you are the one that through grace can guide us to what is broken in us, broken in the world or broken in a situation, you can point out what it is that needs to heal and change. Help us to be able to do that wisely, submitted to you, proclaiming the gospel. Help us to do this, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.